thank you all for joining us this evening. Um, firstly, I would like to acknowledge the Jagara, Yagara and Turrbal people who are the traditional custodians of this land and offer my sincere respect to elders, both past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all other First Nations people who are present here tonight. Our 2017 lecture series, In Colour, looks at the often neglected topic of colour in contemporary art, connecting colour to race, politics, history, religion, technology, and gender. In this third In Colour lecture, Yorta Yorta woman, curator and writer, Kimberly Moulton, discusses her experiences researching and curating in international collections and highlights the work of Southeastern First Peoples who respond and recontextualize cultural material in museums. She considers color in such practices through the lenses of identity, the Western art canon, and the notions of authenticity. Kimberly here um, is senior curator of Southeastern Aboriginal Collections for Museums Victoria at Melbourne Museum and the Victorian curator for the First Nations Curatorial Program in the 2017 Biennale. Um, I'll now pass over to Kimberly, who will talk more about herself um, and go into more detail with her talk tonight. So thank you so much, Kimberly, for joining us this evening here. Thank you. Um, before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're on as well, the Turrbal, the Yugara and Jagara peoples. And I'd like to pay respects to any other uh, mob that are in the room today and also thank um, IMA for having me. Um, so yes, I am a Yorta Yorta woman. I grew up in country Victoria and have been in Melbourne for about 12 years now. I've spent quite a lot of time in Brisbane. I have lots of family and friends up here. So Brizzy, um, or Mianjin I should say, uh, has a very um, close um, part in my heart. Um, so I'm senior curator for Southeastern Collections at the Melbourne Museum and Part of that role um, is looking after the, the 4,000 collections of New South Wales, Victoria and Tasmanian cultural material. I started at the Melbourne Museum in 2008 um, and for eight years I was at Bunjalaka Aboriginal Cultural Centre curating the contemporary Victorian Aboriginal Art Gallery there. Um, I was also an assistant curator on the First Peoples exhibition which is a permanent exhibition. Um, has anyone been to First Peoples? Hands up? No? Yeah? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I also worked on that exhibition. As, along with my museum role and, and the work that I do there, I have an independent practice as well. So I, I work within um, a curatorial practice in, in visual arts outside of the museum. I'm both a curator in the arts and within museums and I don't define myself as either. Um, I often get asked the question, well, which one are you? Um, and my answer to this is that I work within culture, a living, thriving culture that is multi-layered and I refuse to define my practice as either sitting within ethnography or the contemporary. It is culture, it is activism and it is ever adapting. Um, so I was asked to give this lecture and um, speak on my research through the theme of colour and um, colour in Indigenous art in particular. I'm going to take a little bit more of an abstract approach um, and my title, Seeing in Black and White from 1 to 1788, How Authentic Are You? It was more of a provocation um, and in hindsight perhaps it should have been from 1788 to 2017. Um, and it, may have it would have made more sense. 
But I wanted people to think about their assumptions that they may have towards what authentic Aboriginal art is, what uh, a real Aboriginal person is, and what meets the traditional criteria or the, cri the contemporary criteria outside the obvious Western linear notions of time. Um, tonight I'll be uh, speaking on three core themes based on my personal experiences. And the colour I'll be talking about is my position as a black woman, as a yorta yorta woman, um, in the predominantly white spaces that I work within and that I'm attempting to shift. Um, so the three sort of core areas I'll be looking at will be museums and collecting and examples of Western influences to the notions of authenticity, art and culture through the lens of sovereignty and the colonial art canon, and then I wanted to look at um, some Victorian Aboriginal artists currently that use the collection and the archive in their practice. Many of the images I'll show um, are from my research overseas and I've had the opportunity um, to research southeastern collections and curatorial practice at places like Oxford um, and Cambridge Universities, um, Tate Liverpool, Serpentine Gallery London, British Museum, the Royal Academy, most recently the Pigorini Museum in Rome, the National Scot um, Scottish Museum, Berlin Museum of Ethnography, and I've also spent quite a bit of time in the States having um, a residency at the Kligiroo Aboriginal Art Collection in 2015, and there I researched um, at the Smithsonian in Washington and in New York at Brooklyn Art Museum, the Met, and the Natural History Museum. I want to mention all of these um, because they are the big players, and they have a lot of the cultural material from my people and, and also other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from across the country. I'm also not an anthropologist and I'm not a historian. Uh, and I don't wish to be indoctrinated into these forms of Western systems of trying to understand the world as they are systems that I'm trying to shift and invert. No offence to anthropologists or historians, <laughs> there's still a role and I work with many great anthropologists and um, historians, but it's not for me. Um, some call this decolonising, but I see it as speaking up and taking back our right in these spaces and challenging the systems that have been put in place to oppress us. This, of course, cannot be done in isolation um, or without the partnership of other um, non-first peoples. I'm a staunch advocate for Aboriginal people working with and leading the vision of our ancestral belongings, artworks and cultural stories in museums and galleries. However, we must work with our allies and collaborate. I see my role as working within culture. I am continuing my sovereign right of our cultural material in, muse in museums and our stories in galleries. I also see myself as a conduit between the museum uh, and the community and a bridge between both. And I have a very strong focus in my practice at the museum on the intersection of contemporary art um, and living makers. I'm really interested in how do artists recontextualise or, or form new context with material um, and the historical material in the collections that have little or no cultural um, narrative recorded or attached. They were, they were taken, they were collected, um, and you know mostly about the non-Indigenous collector and not the, the community it comes from. So how do artists re recontext? this space? How do artists reimagine this space? How can art and community connection bring life into the objects that lie dormant in these tombs? And how can artists work in the space of repatriation? How can their response to the collection both repatriate our, our cultural material, um, the tangible and the intangible cultural heritage that lies within that space? 
Um, so this is just a photo of me at Cambridge University and uh, this shield uh, was part of the collection there, Southeastern Collection. And part of my process in my practice is Golpa uh, Nawal, which is deep listening in Yorta Yorta language. It's not just listening uh, and learning with your eyes and through education, it's learning with your heart and being completely open to everything that's in front of you and the, and the ground that you're on. Um, so I'm going to go into a little bit of family history uh, because that's what I'm going to do and I think it's a really important um, part of my life because I can't talk about my work and my family and my culture separately. They are completely entwined. Um, I have been taught to share stories and um, to educate through uh, my family and particularly uh, my uncle Wayne Atkinson um, through a storyline narrative, through our Yorta Yorta narrative. This is where I can place myself and my history amongst the rest of our histories. And it is through Golpa Nawal and it is through the Yorta Yorta storyline that I can honour my ancestors and work within the space um, in a cultural appropriate way. I come from the um, James and Cooper families and um, my family, are the Yorta Yorta uh, people and my clan is the Walithika people and my clan's country is um, north uh, east of Victoria along the Murray River and into Echuca. I come from a very long line of um, Yorta Yorta activists and my great-grandmother was a survivor of the brutality of the frontier and she married my great-grandfather who was actually Mauritius and he was a teacher and a doctor on the mission. Um, and that's him on the far left there standing up in the suit um, and my, my grandmother's in this photo and this is the school behind them that he taught um, many people. My, um, my great uncle is William Cooper and William Cooper uh, was a civil rights activist and leader and, and he, he along with others like Annie Marge Tucker and Sir Pastor Doug Nichols, I'm not sure if you've heard of these people but they are integral um, important community members in the southeast um, for civil rights. But they um, formed a group called the Australian Aborigines League. And this was a political group in the 30s. And my uncle um, led a deputation into the city um, many times, actually, in protest. And, and they petitioned the king for Aboriginal representation in parliament. And they also um, led a protest after the night of Kristallnacht, which is the night of the broken glass, uh, when Nazi Germany uh, were leading this regime against the Jewish people. And, Uncle William Cooper had heard about this and he decided to protest and he walked from Footscray um, with the other members of the AAL um, to the German consulate and handed them a letter um, demanding that uh, the, the, they stop the cruel persecution of the Jewish people. Uh, this is a very important part of our history um, that not many people know and there's actually 77 gum trees planted in Israel in his honour. Uh, because he was 77 at the time of the deputation and it's the only recorded um, protest in the world at the time. Um, my, and this is him here, he had a pretty mean moustache. Um, my nans, uh, my matriarchs, um, Nan Becky and, and Claire, were part of a performance troupe called the Merry Singers and they left the mission and, and would perform around with the troupe um, it's my nan on the far right and nans and aunts and I won't go through everyone, but that's my family. Um, 
and they they really um, showed a lot of strength leaving the mission and and there's many stories that I won't go into now of, of their strength um, I I begin to share this storyline with you because it's a part of who I am, but it's also a part of the museum's Victoria collection. So these photos come um, and sit within the, the collection at the museum that I work for at Melbourne Museum. And my family's genealogies also sit within the archives of this museum. Now I work there, and I work there with tens of thousands of of cultural material uh, from our communities from across Australia. I work with the ancestral remains that are still in the museum waiting to be returned home. So I don't just walk into work every day and then leave at 5pm and leave it at the door. Um, this is something that is part of me. My ancestors, my family and my obligation to culture cannot sit separate. So my role as senior curator, as, as I said before, is to care for um, the over, over the 4,000 collections for the southeast. I am to research, activate through exhibitions, and I'm also there to acquire items into the state collection to be there forever. Um, my role outside of the museum in curating exhibitions is also that of telling stories and supporting Aboriginal artists in doing this. The Melbourne Museum is the oldest um, collecting institution in the country. So it had its beginnings um, in 1854, I think it was, and it had a very close relationship with the National Gallery of Victoria at the time as well. We have 16 million collection objects um, with over 50,000 Australian Indigenous materials, thousands and thousands of photos of our people. And as I said before, a permanent exhibition and a contemporary art gallery within that space as well. So as you can see up here, this, these are some early photos from um, Melbourne Museum. And the beginnings of this museum, the display it was opened in March um, 1854. It had minerals and geological specimens, fish and birds and everything you would expect from a museum. It also displayed Aboriginal skulls and some anatomical preparations. So this statement, I feel, articulates the complex histories of the museum with First Peoples, with our objects and with the people that were stolen. Some of these were exchanged, some were gifted, some were taken, some were bought. Um, but it's part of the, the collection, really at the frontier of a, of a regime of eugenics and race hierarchy. The fact that many institutions in the world and the one that I work for have had its foundations in the collection of our, of our people and of our culture. Um, this, this is a very traumatic history, I think, entwined in these institutions, is a history of dispossession of First Peoples in the collection of our material. So, a little bit of history, but it's, um, this is from my perspective and, and my observations over the, the past few years of travelling. and. Um, the Age of Enlightenment, this, this, this concept, I'd learnt a little bit about it at university, I'd, I'd read about it, but it wasn't until going into the British Museum and the, the Room of Enlightenment. Um, I'm not sure if anyone has been in there. Judy, I'm sure you have. Um, I, it was really, it kind of hit me. And I was like, what is this Enlightenment? What is this period? And the, the Age of Enlightenment, well, it was a period where the, the development of, of intellectual thought exploded, philosophy, science, and the mission of discovery. It was at its competitive peak. Um, and a product of this time, of, of course, was James Cook. Um, 
And as he set out to find the great southern unknown land, he landed in Sydney and he landed on Gweagle land and he collected a Gweagle shield. This object, which is up here, and this is my awkward photo <laughs> heading into the British Museum. Um, I went over um, with Accelerate with the British Council a few years ago and myself and Michael Cook actually went into the museum to see some of the collections and meet with the curators there. And um, this shield was collected. This is the Gweagle shield that was collected by Cook and Joseph Banks at that time, at that landing. Um, it also has a bullet hole through it. Um, the, the British Museum tend, well, have said that they're not entirely sure it's a bullet hole, but it's, <laughs> it's a bullet hole. Um, and this was my first encounter, so to speak, in this space. Um, it had been sitting in the Enlightenment room with little to no information, other than the fact it did actually state, we think this is a bullet hole. Um, it was collected by Captain Cook on his voyage um, and sitting amongst the, the trophies of the frontier in this room. Um, this moment for me was um, both sad and, and um, like I said before, kind of a moment where I thought, well, I want to learn more. I want to go around the world and I want to learn more and I want to connect in with our objects and I want to understand why they're, they're still positioned in this way because I'm very much alive and I know all the mob back home you know, are very much alive. So why are we in the past and why is our culture at the British Museum, which holds thousands of our collections, why, be, why, are, be, why are we being represented by a bullet hole um, through a shield? In the early collection... Uh, so this is me again this year at the British Museum. I've got that same awkward smile on my face. Uh, and this is in the collection Gay Skullthorpe um, let me through. So I was there to research again southeastern collections. Um, and it was pretty mind-blowing walking into a space where there's just 10 emu feather skirts, which are, are really rare, um, just masses of, of material, um, like they were made yesterday. Then the early collection of our objects from Australia, you know, they were taken through lots of ways, through with anthropologists, early settlers, amateur collectors, missionaries. Um, and I would say most of these interactions were unethical. They, and they were at a time where the power balance was completely unequal. So the moment when Cook took this shield led to the future collection of ma our material. This shield is the beginning of our material being in institutions, of our representation in institutions, whether that be museums or galleries. I'll keep moving forward. Um, so this is quickly, this is me uh, at Cambridge University um, around that same time and um, seeing Shields, they also have a collection from Cook as well. Um, and, and this is the collection, that very first photo I showed you um, of the Shield, that's, that's me there. It's a kangaroo tooth necklace um, up in that corner and this is actually, that's actually from Pitt Rivers Museum uh, at Oxford University, but there are extraordinary collections of Victorian material in these places. In my research, as I've mentioned, I've come across hundreds of ancestral objects and I can feel their presence and I can see their influence on my community and artists today. The traditional culture and the authentic comes up quite constantly when I'm in these spaces. And it is a legacy of how and why these items were collected that is still very present in the institutions and the curators and keepers of them. Two examples of um, the historical, the influencer, um, 
I'm going to give you is when I went to Pitt Rivers Museum. And Pitt Rivers uh, is the museum at Oxford University. It was founded in 1820. It has incredible collections. It has 15,000 objects from Australia, 1,300 photos. Um, but the display is positioned in this global homogenous context of typology. The cultural objects are mostly based within a utilitarian construct of use and absent of any cultural identity. A lot of the cases are really esoterically themed as well. Um, so that's just a photo, it's just this extraordinary um, museum of a museum. And everywhere you look, or everywhere I could see um, Victorian objects coming out. There's actually bags there also from Stradbroke Island. Um, so really important collections. What really came out to me quite strongly, um, particularly at Pitt Rivers, was um, this label here. And this, I think, um, spoke very strongly to notions of authenticity. So it, it says that it's a good specimen. This is a shield from, um, I would say, Victoria. Um, and it, it was a good specimen, but its value was slightly diminished because it was impaired by the white man's tool. Um, and this idea of of something having value if, it, if it's unimpaired, if there hasn't been um, stone, sorry, if there hasn't been glass or steel used, um, that had more of a value to, to the museum. Uh, it was not the technique that was valued or the knowledge that was valued. Um, and this technique and this knowledge, they still continue today. They're, they're tens of thousands of years old. When I look at these objects, when I look at the shields and the different things that I come in contact with in my, my role through the museum, I see artists, I see the lines and the work of Lynn Onis. I see um, people like Stephen Ryle, who's a contemporary Tungarong photographer based in Melbourne, and he's capturing lines in, in the landscape. Uh, I see the work of Rico Rennie and Vicky Cousins, and, and this is all coming out very strongly to me. It's... Um, Pitt Rivers is an extraordinary place and the, the type of mass kind of collection and, and display led to a lot of frustration for me as I was left unknowing anything about the object um, and I could only guess the narrative or imagine the narrative around this. Another um, problematic kind of influencer of this space was the, the grouping them together and, and the esoteric case um, that one sort of space had which was called Magic Witchcraft and Trial by Ordeal, um, which is very dramatic and um, was pretty, pretty crazy. It had um, amulets to ward off witches. Um, it had any, everything to do with the occult and different things for over hundreds and hundreds of years from all across the world. But what they also had in there were um, carved dugong from the Torres Strait. They had message sticks from the western part of Victoria. Um, and also their, their, their provenance right down to, to um, clan groups, which is really quite unusual. And they were sitting next to a very mysterious little silvered vial, which you can see here, um, from Sussex, that contained a witch. And um, the, I asked the curator if she'd ever opened the cork, and she said, no, 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 she was very adamant that she didn't want to let the witch out. Um, but, you know, our cultural material was sitting amongst the, the, the silvered vial of the witch and, and all of these things, and... It, it removed any cultural significance that 
people may understand. It, it sort of put them in a place of mythology. It, it put them in a place of fairy tales, of fables and witches and ghouls. And I mean, some people might believe that they're true as well. But it, it, it was this positioning that made me feel really uncomfortable and it was quite disturbing. An artist that's actually responded to this space at Pitt Rivers is Christian Thompson. Yeah, Christian's incredible, and he was actually the first Aboriginal person to attend Oxford University, uh, and he got his doctorate there. Uh, but while he was there, he responded to the Pitt Rivers collection and the museum, and he responded to the photographic collection, and he, his body of work was called We Bury Our Own. And he was looking at ideas around repatriation and particularly spiritual repatriation and the way that art can uh, give back um, in a way or send these objects home even if they can't, you know, go back home. So even if they're detached from us geographically, there is still a connection to our ancestors. It lives through us, it's ongoing and it can be returned through this art. Um, I found this you know, when I was there, it was, it was amazing to, to know that an Aboriginal artist had been working in this space. I was probably six months after Christian had left, um, I'd come in. And it really has opened up, I feel, this space for Aboriginal artists to go in a lot more. And I must mention Judy, as <laughs> you're here, um, being someone that's actually really have led um, the space of artists working in the, the archive. Um, so... The whole seeing in black and white um, title sort of came from my experience uh, in the Smithsonian Museum a couple of years ago. And I went back again last year to see the cloak that's there. And there is a possum skin cloak at the museum. I'm not sure if you know about possum skin cloaks. I know Cruel Dargan did an incredible show on them very recently um, because they did go from Victoria right up through Queensland. And we would have a cloak from when we were a baby and we'd have it your whole life. You'd be buried in the cloak and it, it was a very important part of your life. And there's not many historical cloaks left in the world. There's three, in fact, full cloaks. The museum I have, um, I work for has two, a Yorta Yorta one and a Gunachamara one from the Western District. And then the Smithsonian, um, the Natural History Museum in Washington has one from, they think it's the Hunter Valley region. Um, and this is me in, in the collection with that cloak has incredible um, spirit sort of figures carved or incised all over it and there's ochres, beautiful red and yellow ochres that are, are still so vibrant in the cloak. Um, when I looked at this I could see again artists um, of Vera Cooper, I'm not sure if anyone's aware of her work, um, you know you can see these, these forms still coming out in our community's art. When I was there with the curator she, um, once I had finished looking at the cloak, she put, um, put the, the, you know, the paper and everything needs to go back on the cloak and then she closed the drawer. And as she was closing the drawer, she said, um, it's time to go back to sleep now. This for me um, was, I mean, it was, it was said in care and it was said out of um, her caring for that collection. But it really, um, it kind of disturbed me and it was a very clear moment where I could see our two ways of thinking that were very, very opposite. Um, Adrian was thinking that it's time to go back to sleep, the dorm, you know, become dormant again, rest. Whereas I walk into this space and I see a living object, I see my community and I see how relevant it is now. And of course, um, 
different kind of conversations around custodianship and possession happened in that space. And that's what I like when I go into these spaces as well. It's about talking with the curators and the keepers of these of these collections and understanding where they're coming from. And part of my research at Oxford um, was especially looking at the way that they're responding to contemporary lived uh, experiences of Aboriginal culture and contemporary artists and the way that we are um, continuing our, our cultural legacies. I'll just skip over that. So the labelling, the Western typology, the historicising of our cultures I see as influences to the approach um, to collecting and the Western system of understanding our cultural material. These influences have been part of the foundation of how Aboriginal art has been defined, curated and collected, and it's relevant to us now. I've witnessed in institutions both here and internationally placing the traditional art, such as that maybe of the Western Desert or Barks from Northeast Arnhem Land, as dreamtime work in the historical past, that, the real, that they are the real deal and anything else that sits you know, on the fringes is urban or political or suburban art. I think this isolation of work is based on traditional authenticity or appealing to the, to the expectation of what our art should be. And I know it has made it very hard for other black artists, particularly of the southeast, to even get a look in into these spaces. This is evident uh, when you look at the gaps in the collection. So the gap tells a story. Many of the curators I've met um, understand and mostly engage in the fact that we are a living culture, that our artistic practices are as authentic as they were 200 years ago. But the reality is that our art and our current practice have, practices have not always been regarded in the same way because they are not present in collections. This is particularly relevant to Victorian Aboriginal art and it's the representation in institutions. It's only been really from the mid-1980s um, that Victorian art was properly considered in these spaces. It was the establishment of a place called the Koori Heritage Trust, um, which is uh, controlled and, and managed by the Koori community, that, that really shifted this. Um, the Koori Heritage Trust was established to um, protect and care for historical material of the southeast, but also to address the lack of interest and the lack of collection of contemporary works in the institutions that really had the responsibility to do that. The NGV and the NGA and the museum that I work for has slowly caught up um, to addressing the gap. However, it's still not there and, and this has really only happened because of the pressure from community. This history has heavily influenced the focus of my practice at the museum. And while it's in, you know, very important, obviously, to um, consider and um, respect the historical material that still needs to be present in these spaces um, that may come up for acquisition, I'm very much focused on the gaps, what we have missed out on the last 70 years. How do we properly represent our culture and our history when the focus is that of the 19th century? I want to look at living makers, artists, and what's happening now. Um, so my most recent trip, these are just some, some examples, and excuse the, the photos, I had a bit of a crash today and had to chuck everything in, they're not captioned, um, of, of Victorian Aboriginal art. And Lynn Onis obviously was an incredibly important artist who fought and advocated for Southeastern art, Victorian Aboriginal artists, to be included into these you know, institutional spaces as Aboriginal art. Um, and he is a hero of mine. 
Um, we have incredible artists, you know, in Victoria at the moment. And again, I, I think the show Melbourne Now at the NGV um, really increased the collection of a lot of Victorian artists um, a few years ago. Um, but it has been something that has not been happening for a very long time. People like Trina Ham, who um, is an incredible weaver and painter and, and all-round amazing artist. Um, and then people like Trevor Turbo Brown as well, um, who, who paints these animals. He sadly passed away a few months ago, but he was, um, has quite a few works in the collection. And then we have emerging or sort of more emerging artists like Kent Morris and Paola Bella, um, really doing amazing work. So I'm going to actually just really skip through this quite fast. Um, but recently I was in Berlin and um, I was over there researching southeastern collections and a collection um, called the Blandowski Collection. And I also got the opportunity to see um, other objects from Victoria and New South Wales. And the object that I'm holding, the shield that I'm holding in this picture is again collected by Captain Cook and Joseph Banks. Um, and it was quite um, a confronting experience walking into the space, the gallery actually, they're moving the, the museum and it was just this empty dark gallery and they'd rolled the trolleys in with the objects. Um, and it's, it's quite a um, difficult experience being the only person going into these spaces and it's a privilege to be representing community in these spaces and my community but it's also my right as an Aboriginal person to be walking in here, in there. Um, and this shield, you can see the really faint markings that are still there. And the longer I looked at it, I looked at it for um, hours actually under the light and I could start to see the designs and, and the ochres that were once, would have been very, very vibrant. You can see the, um, the sort of cross sections and that on the back of the shield. And then here, the faint sort of um, red ochre markings, and um, which would have been over the white, so it would have been a very vibrant red lines and white coming out. Um, seeing the, the ledger um, where, when that object came in and, and Cook's name, it's all very surreal. Um, the collection was very interesting um, in its relation to the National Gallery of Victoria because um, some of the collection that I had seen uh, that also included a lot of William Barak's work um, came from Eugene von Gerard, who was the first curator at the National Gallery of Victoria, and he had collected a lot of this cultural material. So when I walked into the, the, the space here, um, again, it was quite confronting because our material was hanging on butcher's hooks. Um, and when the, the curator opened the cabinet, I was sort of taken back um, by that. And then um, here we have two works. Um, one of them is by Barak, um, the, the figure I'm holding there, and that's a figure of, of a woman. And then there was a, a kangaroo tooth necklace in the collection that was actually identified in the Western Australian drawer, um, but it is Victorian, and it was collected by Gerard and came in at the same time as this collection and it was astounding to see these because they're so rare, they're so incredibly rare. Um, I asked if there was, I knew that they had pelts um, and they just sort of casually brought out this, this possum um, cloak that they'd cut up and stuck onto cardboard a long time ago. I was going to talk um, through sovereignty and the colonial canon but I might, I might actually just skip forward because you can actually read a lot 
um, of the, what I was going to talk about in the essay that's on um, the ACCA website in the Sovereignty Catalogue. Um, I was just going to plagiarise my own writing and read it to you, but I'm not going to do that. You can just go and read it yourself. Um, but I will talk about Sovereignty, um, the exhibition and ACCA. Um, and this was a, quite a monumental exhibition that opened in Melbourne last year in December. Uh, and it was the first time really um, that, uh, well it was the first time that an uh, Aboriginal curator had come in to ACCA and that it was a, a, such an all, um, all Aboriginal show. So between 2003 and 2016 um, with the director before Max Delaney who's in there now, there was two Aboriginal artists that showed in that entire time. Um, so it's really fantastic to see a space like the um, Australian Contemporary Arts Centre in Melbourne putting First Peoples work at the fore. Um, this was curated by, um, I just wanted to make mention there actually, that's William Barak. And William Barak uh, was a chief in Narangita of the Woiwurrung, the Wurundjeri people of Melbourne. Uh, and he was an artist and they included um, quite a bit of his work in, in the show at ACCA. It was curated by um, Paula Bella. Um, Paula is a, an artist, curator and a, an activist in Melbourne. And this um, shifted something, I think, in Melbourne. It was a, a space where, you know, people like Barack and his work and, and cultural material that was loaned out from museums was entered into this space of photography and makers and activists. So this is a work, uh, this is Paula standing in front of a work by Marie Clark. And I'll talk a little bit more about Marie in a little while. This is a work by Bronwyn Razum. She's a weaver. This is uh, Brooke Andrews' um, work and a large-scale projection by Destiny Deacon and Virginia Fraser. We had work in there. We, I, was, I was on the advisory committee. Um, <laughs> talk about it like it's mine. But um, Acker had work in there. Paula had work and Max um, by Stephen Payton, who is another uh, amazing artist at the moment um, coming in from Victoria. So this space, I think, really shifted um, something in Melbourne and it's not something that I'd seen before, for Victoria, that is. And I'm, I'm speaking from a Victorian, you know, perspective. Shooting back to my research overseas, I had the opportunity um, in 2015 to uh, have a curatorial residency at the Klugiru Aboriginal Art Collection in Charlottesville in Virginia. Um, it's sort of been on the news recently, um, as you probably would have seen with um, the, the race sort of... Anyway, I, I curated a show over there of um, bark works from Jambawa Marawili. And that was an interesting space um, for me because... As a Yorta Yorta woman, I was on Monican country. Monican are the first peoples um, of Charlottesville. Uh, but the, the first peoples, the, the Native American peoples of that area, the, it's almost non-existent, the histories um, that people know about. They're still there and the, the memories are still there. But we have a space where there's the, the colonial settler history of Virginia, which is the first colonised state in, in the States. We have the, the black slavery history and we have um, Thomas Jefferson's plantation um, in that town as well. Uh, and then we also have, you know, the, the First Peoples history. So I was there and um, I went through a, a huge process and I actually, um, Stephen Gilchrist's writing uh, is really integral to my practice as well and, and I, I find him um, amazing. 
in terms of decolonial, anti-colonial theory and indigenising spaces. Um, and so I did this exhibition um, on Jambola's work and one thing that I wanted to change was the, the white space and, and made the space blue, like the waters of Yukala. Um, and his works really popped off that space as well. Um, just really, really quickly, and maybe you can go off and do some more research yourselves on Victorian Aboriginal artists. ACA is a, a fantastic, the Sovereignty Catalogue is a fantastic resource for that, um, which is available online. But three um, artists that I think um, are really important and I wanted to make mention are Vicky Cousins and Marie Clark. Vicky Cousins um, has been working within the space of the museum and the archive for many, many years and she creates a new context, I think, around a lot of the historical material that I work with every day. Um, this is an example of um, her work. So we have the possum skin cloak, which this is a, a sketch. Um, I can't show you the, the actual photo at the moment. Um, of the cloak, and she's taken one square of that, which is an aerial view map of her country, of Gunichamara country. This was created, this cloak, in um, 1878. Um, and then she's, she's done a, a work with this, um, this sort of pattern or aerial view map of country. And then she, for the opening of Bunjalaka, and she was very involved in that, she um, created this beautiful welcome rug with that um, design on it as well. She is integral um, in the, the possum skin cloak revival projects that have been happening in Victoria and um, that really took off around the Commonwealth Games. She led um, a huge project for that. This is her work in Akka. It's her possum skin cloak and um, some photography work around massacre sites of Western Victoria. This is her here. And finally, um, Marie Clark. Marie is another artist that I've worked very closely with over, the, over many years and has been reviving and reclaiming cultural practice, but scaling it to a huge size, creating completely um, just incredible uh, examples and sort of taking our practices further. So, for example, um, the kangaroo tooth necklace. The, the kangaroo tooth necklace we have in the collection from Marie, she actually um, used the historical one in the collection. She researched that, she used that as almost a template and created a brand new one. And this was the first time this had happened, you know, since contact, since this historical necklace was in the collection. Um, and Marie then made, um, she's been making for many, many years and she, the NGV commissioned her for Melbourne now and she scaled um, this necklace up to a huge size and she's just had one in the um, National Gallery of Australia as well for the Defying Empire exhibition. Um, but her practice is taking, you know, uh, I would say a, a practice that is dormant, not, not lost or gone, but something that's been sleeping within the institution and, and within communities in the South. Um, she's taking that practice and she's awakening it again, um, but then taking it and adapting it to this whole other level. Um, she's also been making river reed necklaces. So, you know, we, ha we had river reed necklaces. I've seen quite a lot in collections, but she's making 50 metre long necklaces. Um, and that's me painted up in ochre um, with wearing one of her necklaces. Yeah, I would encourage you to research um, into Victorian Aboriginal artists and, and how they're um, using the archive. Thanks. Just want to say thank you so much, Kimberly, for um, generously sharing with us this evening. Um, we have about time for like 
five minutes of questions. Um, so maybe one or two if anyone wants to ask Kimberly a question while she's here. I wonder um, if when you went into Pitt Rivers after Christian or uh, as you've moved into collections that maybe other artists or curators um, have entered into, if you've seen an impact on the thinking of the house curators of those institutions, like are you starting to see the work of artists like Judy or Christian shift the mentality of the people who are custodians in the, like overseas? Yeah, definitely. And that's the thing, I'm, you know, there's, there's been many um, artists and, and curators and people that have paved the way before me. I'm certainly not the first person to go in and to observe these things. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm definitely, particularly um, at Pitt Rivers, um, having spoken with Chris Morton, who had worked very closely with um, Christian, um, and that whole space had really shifted, I think. Well, I, I, I mean, it's hard to tell because I don't have a... I can't compare because I hadn't been before Christian was there. But certainly um, in the way that they understood living culture and the, the importance of the historical material to Aboriginal people today and listening to mob that are coming in and, and telling them that that shouldn't be on display or, or this is how maybe you should, you know, talk about this work. And things, I think, in that space have shifted. And, and also having um, people like Gay Sculthorpe at the British Museum, who's a Tasmanian Aboriginal woman, um, and she's the curator there now of Oceanic Collections. Um, that has made a huge difference as well, um, having someone in that space. Mm. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Wonderful talk. Um, I was just... Uh, it's interesting, the artists you brought up, and uh, uh, do you think that cultural shift is not just uh, with within the external places and the institutions, but because the affirmation of Aboriginal artists to uh, push their heritage into a space that sometimes puts it in that timeline of 1788, and, you know, mm. so it, it's the, the colonisation that has created this uh, disconnect but the artists are actually uh, creating the affirmation of who they are culturally and can, you know, continuing the cultural processes and protocols. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's a very personal, you know, thing in terms of... I mean, I, I'm interested in critiquing the ideas around traditional versus contemporary and... Um, and the language that we use around that, and how that's um, and how that continues to affect the way that you know the institution collects um, or presents you know our culture. But it's a very personal thing, and I um, I think that you know I work with a lot of artists that that um, actually I had one fellow send me a text today with some of um, the shields and things he's making, um, and I'd actually hosted him and um, his family in the in the collection not long ago. And he was really excited to show me his traditional shields that he was making and that's how he speaks about his art and that's completely fine. Um, it's not about policing that, but I think for me, yeah, it's just it's a really personal thing um, for people to, sit, to, to describe and to define their work. But um, I challenge institutions when we aren't in there having the autonomy over the way that we want to be represented, um, when there's other people doing that for us, that's, that's where I challenge that space.
Mm, hope that answers so yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Kimberly. That was fabulous. I just wondered with the photographs of you, they were kind of quite suggestive, the photographs of you with the objects, particularly I think when you were at the Humboldt in, in Berlin. I wondered if you you've obviously collected these photographs of you with objects, whether there's uh, something that you're thinking of there or some kind of affective theme? Yeah, I um, I think it's... it's Well, part of my, my research is to show community the photos. That, you know, I have the privilege of going into these spaces, um, like I said earlier, you know, as part of the community because it's not... Not everyone can go over into these spaces um, and I've been very lucky. So part of what I try to do in giving back um, from these experiences is take as many photos as I can, catalogue them into regions um, with the artists and communities that I'm working for and, and sending them to the communities. Um, but part of me taking photos of myself with the objects is because I feel like I have a very strong connection to them and the greatest sadness for me when I go into these spaces is leaving them. Um, and my greatest fear um, is also not being able to keep my promise, and that is to get them home one day. So I suppose um, me taking photos with them is like me taking a photo with a friend or a family member that I might not see for a really long time. Yeah, that's, that's how I see it. Thank you again so much, Kimberly. I think we all really enjoyed that and the generosity in coming here today and sharing that. So thank you once again to Kimberly. Thank you. Thank you.